This is the Monday, June 5, 2017 episode of the History Author Show. Visit our iHeartRadio channel or subscribe on iTunes to enjoy a brand new episode every Monday morning. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore. How I miss those old pals of mine. The sawdust is gone from the floor. Where we harmonize, sweet Adeline, on the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys, oh, New York ain't New York anymore. General Dwight D. Eisenhower and his deputy commanders chart the liberation of a lost continent. Plan when and where the mighty armies of the United Nations will strike. Today, northern France is that battleground. Then, on the fifth day of June, 1944, a fleet of more than 4,000 ships put out from England. This was D-Day, fourth anniversary of the Battle of Dunkirk, and the Allied armies were striking back. Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Dean Carianis, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio. June 6th, the anniversary of the D-Day landings in 1944 to liberate Hitler's fortress Europe. This week, our time machine hits those bloody beaches of Normandy, where we'll meet the oldest man and highest-ranking officer to go ashore with the first wave. General Ted Roosevelt. Yes, Roosevelt. Ted Roosevelt. A man with two famous names. Two legendary names. Forty years before he rallied the troops, with a bad heart and leaning on a cane, by the way, Ted was in the glare of the public spotlight already, as the oldest son of President Theodore Roosevelt. Ted had the name, the looks, the legacy, the expectations, and all that pressure literally gave him headaches as a young man. So how did Ted avoid the pitfalls of that upbringing to reach that crowning moment on D-Day, action which earned him the Congressional Medal of Honor? Here to introduce us to the younger Theodore Roosevelt is Tim Brady, author of His Father's Son, The Life of General Ted Roosevelt Jr. Tim Brady is a Peabody award-winning writer whose works include 12 Desperate Miles, and A Death in San Pedro. He has written a number of PBS documentaries and helped develop the series Liberty, the American Revolution. We'll link to his author pages at Amazon and Penguin Random House on this episode's page at historyauthor.com. Okay, now that we've learned a little bit about the family tree we'll be climbing today, let's join Tim Brady and meet Ted Roosevelt, his father's son. I'm joined on the line by Tim Brady, author of His Father's Son, The Life of General Ted Roosevelt Jr. Thanks for making time to chat with the History Author Show. Oh, it's my pleasure. Glad to be here. First, a note for the listeners, for the sake of clarity, we'll try to refer to the younger Roosevelt as Ted or Ted Jr. and the elder TR as TR or the president as much as possible. I think it'll be clear for everybody. That sound good? 
Sounds good to me. I wanted to start with a quote by the always quotable older sister of Ted Roosevelt, (laughs) TR's first child, Alice Roosevelt Longworth. She is quoted as saying, it sounds like something she would say, poor Ted, he certainly can't cross a street without everyone criticizing him for not doing it as well as his father. And even if he navigates it nicely, they say he did it just as old TR would have done. And to me, I look at it as the poor guy can only lose or tie. There's just no winning for him. Let's start where you do in his father's son. How old is Ted when TR is thrust into the presidency by McKinley's assassination? And how does he deal with the spotlight in those immediate years when he's a young man? Well, he's just 14 years old when his father assumes the office of the presidency. In his uh, first year at Groton and just starting prep school, and he's not exactly a young man who's sure of himself anyway. And his ascendancy into the role as as they immediately began teasing him at Groton as first son, it was uncomfortable for Ted. He was always small for his age and had something of a chip on his shoulder anyway, because he also had a slightly crossed eye. And as I say, he was just not all that comfortable. He was a frail kid and he responded to all of these pressures by, uh, he had a tendency to get into scraps with his classmates and those who were around him, who surrounded him and who might tease him or call him first son or something like that. It was not a comfortable transition into the White House for him. We discussed Ted's career here on the show as far as football goes with John J. Miller, who wrote How Teddy Roosevelt Saved Football. And one of the details that you think of, especially if you remember being a young man yourself, is, hey, if you have a chance to hit the president's son, that's pretty cool. It's a little bit of hazing for him. But also, if you didn't like him and a lot of people didn't, you have a chance there for him. And he's not that big. T.R. himself didn't play football. He was big on cheering the games, but he knew that he didn't have the size for it. And he wasn't healthy as a child, as I think most listeners will know on some level. You recount Ted's playing days in his father's son. You talk about some of these injuries. You talk about this way he's really on the field trying to please his father. It starts this lifelong thing for him, trying to live up to his father's example, just be tough, live that strenuous life. What did his career on the gridiron tell you as you researched about the man Ted would grow up to be? A lot. I think it gives a sort of capsule summary of of who he was and what he would be as he grew older. Someone who wanted to defy the odds and wanted to triumph regardless of who his father was. As you mentioned, Ted was an undersized football player. When he played in prep school and when he arrived at Harvard as a freshman, as a 17-year-old freshman, he went out for the team in 1905 went out for the freshman team and became a 140-pound defensive end <laughs> and was a tough character, I mean, a tough little guy, but undersized. He took a lot of abuse on the football field. And his most memorable game that year, his freshman year, was against Yale, which was, of course, the arch rival for Harvard. And Yale had a much better football team in, in that year and a much better freshman team. Compared to Ted and others on the Harvard team, Yale looked like giants. And in the game against Yale, which uh, Harvard ultimately lost, the Yale team tried 
picking on Ted's end to move down the field, and they kept sending a big, tough guy at Ted, and he held up all right, but he took a terrific pounding during the course of the game and wound up by the end of the fourth quarter, just before the end of the game, having to be carried off the field by a couple of teammates, and there's a famous photo of Ted without helmet, without pads, with his arms draped around two teammates basically being carried off the field with a bloody lip and what would turn out to be a broken nose. And yet he he won the admiration of a lot of his Harvard classmates by the mere fact that he survived the game and stuck it out for its length. And I'm reminding myself as you speak, what a different game it was back then. What a savage and tough game. There's not forward passing, so guys are just running into the line. 1905, 19 players died just in that season alone. So this is really a blood sport. We talk about it now, and there certainly are injuries, but we don't have players dying on the field ever. I saw Eric Legrand's unfortunate spinal injury at the New Meadowlands Stadium, the new Giants Stadium against Army. Me, but that's pretty rare now. In those days, this is a really tough game. He's really playing a style of rugby, and he's not that big, as you mentioned. He's lined up sometimes against huge guys that you talk about here in the book. It's really something that he goes out there and proves himself. Yeah. In fact, Ted and his father played a role in the changes in the game that were coming at the very end of that year. 1905 was a pretty seminal year in college football. In October of that year, just as Ted was playing with the Harvard freshman team, his father called a group of coaches and athletic directors to the White House for a conference on how to reform the game. There were several muckraking articles published in The Nation and Collier's Weekly and the Chicago Tribune that fall, which talked about the violence and scandalous behavior that was going on in the game. And there was a death of a player in New York in November, and all of this prompted a conference in in December of that year. The schools and administrators and coaches represented at that conference became the beginnings of the NCAA, and one of the reforms that they instituted at that conference was the advent of the forward pass. Also, the neutral zone. I would invite people to read John J. Miller's book, listen to our interview there, because it is an amazing story how far football has come. And then you look at Ted, as you describe him in the book, you have a few pictures of him there in his father's son. He's small, bookish kid, thin. Think of him strapping on the pads and having this mark on his back. It's really something. It's inspiring. You root for him right from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And it reminds us that his life was tough. Eleanor Alexander, Ted's future wife, writes that the disadvantage of being a great man's son far outweigh the advantages. I think that's a letter to her mother when they're courting. Mm -hmm. And that's in part because Ted refuses to accept favors. He refuses to take the easy way out or appear to trade on his father's name. Give us an example of Ted turning down special treatment. Well, Ted was very sensitive about being his father's son. He was sensitive again to this notion that he was offered special favors and had advantages. There's no denying the fact that as the president's son, as one of the most famous children in the country, he did have advantages, but he tried his best to win things on his own merits. 
the first example might be the best example. And that's, he was sort of an indifferent college student at Harvard. His father worried about his future because he had a hard time buckling down. When he buckled down, he did well, but his grades, he was put on probation in his last semester at Harvard. But he finally muddled his way through. And when he set out to make his career, he decided that he would begin it by working in a carpet factory in Connecticut, working on the floor of that carpet factory, meaning working with the guys in the coveralls, working with carpet and and on the floor. And he would learn the business from the very ground up. And in fact, he did that. Uh, he, He wound up staying with the carpet company through a move to San Francisco a couple years later. For example, he learned what constituted a good carpet. He was said to have a good feel for the carpet, a good touch with the carpet, meaning that he, I don't know anything about the carpet business, but it's to say that he understood what constituted good carpeting from the lowest possible level upward. He began this job when TR was still in the White House, you know, so you have sort of this odd set of circumstances where Ted goes from Harvard to a factory in Connecticut that is working on the floor there. And all of this is being reported in the New York Times and the Washington Post simply because, of course, his father is in the White House. And when TR goes to visit him in Connecticut, it's probably the first time that a president went to visit a factory floor to see one of his son working (laughs) with carpets on the factory floor. But that's what Ted wanted. I know that his father was proud of him for doing this sort of due diligence in his business career. And worth noting, as you describe in his father's son, he didn't go there, Ted, for the publicity. He didn't want to show that he was slumming it, to use a modern term. He went there undercover, didn't want anyone to know, and they managed to find out. But this wasn't a publicity stunt for him. He really had this willingness to work from the ground up. Mm -hmm. You document that throughout his father's son. It's not only the case in business, but also when the Great War hits. T.R. expected his sons to serve just as he had served in the Spanish-American War. He always considered it a blight against his father that his father hadn't served in the Civil War out of deference to his wife, Theodore Roosevelt's mother, who came from the South. She didn't want her brother and her husband fighting each other. T.R. declares his service in the Spanish-American War as, quote, a bow and arrow affair compared to Ted's. What sort of soldier do readers meet in your book, and how does Ted get that ground-up start that makes him a fine soldier throughout his life? Well, he was part of this pre-World War I movement, sort of a volunteer movement among civic leaders and professionals at the start on the East Coast, but this spread across a lot through alumni associations through the country to get people with some sort of college background to help build an officer corps before the draft was instituted and while the army was trying to get some preparations together to create a force that would be effective in Europe. Ted went to upstate New York with a group of Wall Street bankers and Ivy League grads, and they started to learn the basics of military training under the uh, guidance of his father's former coal commander in Cuba, General Leonard Wood. They were learning the basics of army training, army officer training. That's how he began. And when the U.S. entered the war, 
1917. Ted and his brothers had a leg up on others of his ilk when he volunteered, and so he became one of the first officers to serve with the 1st Division in France, and he served as a major at the start of the war. He served with regular troops in the 1st Division. Ted served with a variety of soldiers. He came from a volunteer service and moved into a position with the 1st Division, which was part of the regular army in France, and he was both familiar with some of the most famous names to serve. He was a good friend of George Marshall. He met George Patton. He knew many people through his connections, but he led from the front, and the soldiers in his regiment deeply admired him and were proud of the fact that they were serving with the president's son. After his father dies in 1919, Ted tries his hands at politics. There's a famous line about Ted being the reverse of his father in politics and soldiering, one a very successful politician and the short Spanish-American War soldier, that one crowded hour of his, the other being the reverse, not a long career in politics by any means, but a very successful soldier in two world wars. How does Ted fare when he throws his hat in the ring and tries to follow into the political service of his father? Well, it's a sort of mixed bag. When he left the service at the end of World War I, he made initial forays into the world of politics. But the first thing he did at the end of the war was to help found and actually was a principal mover in the founding of the American Legion, which he could have used as a political tool, but he was, again, very sensitive to the fact that his name would be associated with an organization that he'd help found and that he would be using as a political tool, meaning he could have used the American Legion, which was an immediately popular and large organization, as a way to achieve political power. But he didn't do that. After founding the organization, he went back to New York and ran for a legislative seat from Long Island. It was in imitation of his father who began his political career in the New York Assembly. It was a move that under the circumstances was probably not that necessary. It was probably more symbolic than anything else because he wasn't really a state politician. He'd already sort of surmounted that status in a political sense. And he was really ready for something bigger. And what ultimately happened is he served a year and a half in Albany and then became involved in the presidential campaign of 1920 when his cousin Franklin was running for vice president on the Democratic ticket. The upshot was that Theodore won plaudits from the Republican Party for being sort of a counterweight to Franklin's appearance on the Democratic ticket and was rewarded with an appointment as an assistant secretary of the Navy in Washington. And that was the beginning of his Washington political career. Also the office his father had held, yes. by the way, the yes. assistant secretary of the Navy, right? Yes. You had a description there. You were talking in his father's son about how 
Ted's moment never comes. And you say he came out with many of the same speeches he's talking about or the same themes, not the same speeches. He wasn't just re-delivering them, but he talked about Tammany Hall, for instance, and the corruption there. And by this point in the 20s, that's kind of an old issue. And you talk about it or you describe it as stale coffee. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's a perfect example of it, especially when you think of TR guzzling those huge pots of coffee. <laughs> if you ever wonder how he had how he had so much energy, that was one of the, uh -huh. the reasons why the guy was wired all the time. But that's the thing. His moment doesn't come. He's not only wearing what I think it was Eisenhower's grandson said once, an Ike mask. It's not only that he's wearing this TR mask and has the name and has the big grin, but he's cares about some of these same issues, but they're just been supplanted and they've been changed. And so his moment just never seems to come. That's exactly right. The timing of his political career was just all wrong. He ran for governor of the state of New York in 1924, but his opponent was one of the most popular politicians in the country. He just didn't have a chance. It was a very steep hill to climb to beat Al Smith in the 24 election. He came close, but he couldn't do it. And it was a situation where if he had won that election as governor of New York, he would have been in a position to step into the national spotlight. As a matter of fact, that was the stepping stone that his cousin used to the White House. And he barely lost there. And afterward, he was sort of shuffled aside, used by the Republican Party, but with no real intent of ever promoting him to a position of national prominence in his political career. Truth be told, he didn't have the inner political passions that his father had. I think that, as you mentioned, he had all of the charm and the charisma and all of the personal appeal but there was just something absent in his political message that his father could call forth and convincingly relate to the populace. We're speaking with Tim Brady, author of His Father's Son, The Life of General Ted Roosevelt Jr. You can find his author pages at Amazon and Penguin Random House, linked on this episode's page at historyauthor.com. James M. Scott, a Pulitzer Prize finalist for his book Target Tokyo, Jimmy Doolittle and the Raid that Avenged Pearl Harbor, writes of his father's son, quote, trapped in the shadow of his rough rider father and a political rival of his savvy presidential cousin Franklin, Ted Roosevelt spent much of his life struggling to define himself, a feat he accomplished against all odds sloshing ashore on D-Day. Tim, your book does not lack for praise, but I chose that review because it hints at this rivalry with his cousin, Eleanor, that's his first cousin, and her husband, the more distant cousin, Franklin, who you mentioned him running as a vice president, and you talk about in his father's son that some people were a little confused. They thought maybe he was one of TR's many children, so they didn't really know. It was really coming in there and jumping over Ted. You said using the governorship as a stepping stone. Well, he has to step over Ted to get there. What will readers who place Eleanor and Franklin up on a pedestal learn about how they essentially robbed Ted of his birthright and supplant him, specifically by smearing him with the Teapot Dome scandal? You know, they had an intense rivalry. It was a family rivalry. It was the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's against the Hudson River Roosevelt's, the Hyde Park Roosevelt's. It really colored presidential politics for the next 20 years from the 1920 election forward. At the start of that era, 
the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's were the Roosevelt family in the nation. And when the Democratic Party chose Franklin as its vice presidential candidate in 1920, cynics would say that they chose him because just the name Franklin Roosevelt could foster a lot of confusion about what his relationship was to the recently deceased T.R., a man who had this gaggle of boys in the White House just years before, and, and it would be easy to confuse Franklin Roosevelt with one of those boys, you know, so Republicans just thought it would be a good idea to have, as they would put it, a real Roosevelt in the shape of Ted trail Franklin on the campaign stops and let people know that his fifth cousin Franklin was usurping the family name. And so he went out on the hustings in 1920, Ted did, and followed Franklin around and clarified to people who didn't know better that Franklin was not part of the Oyster Bay Roosevelt families. And this fostered a dispute that went so far as to include Franklin's mother and Ted's mother and all the various Oyster Bay and, and Hyde Park Roosevelt's in a back and forth about who were the true and who were the fake Roosevelt's. And that led ultimately to bad feelings that carried into the 1924 New York gubernatorial race. Now, by this time, Franklin had been stricken with polio and was unable to go out and campaign for himself. But Franklin's wife, Eleanor, who was a first cousin of Ted and bridged the Oyster Bay and Hyde Park Roosevelt families, decided to tag Ted with the label of being uh, tainted by the Teapot Dome scandal, which was this notorious oil scandal in the Harding administration, oil and corruption. And Ted had been peripherally involved in it because as Secretary of the Navy, oil leases that were controlled by the Navy and it becomes pretty arcane at this point and it will take too much time to explain the details. <laughs> but Ted was never implicated in the scandal at all. But on the campaign trail in 1924, his involvement in the Harding administration became scandal enough for his opponents, who included Eleanor. And Eleanor, as a means to deflate Ted's candidacy, trailed him around the state of New York, driving a car which had on the top of it a papier-mâché teapot, which was obvious to remind voters of Ted's connection to the Harding administration and the Teapot Dome scandal. It was a slight that Ted and his wife and family could never forgive Eleanor for, and Franklin as well. So it was that was really probably the final break between the families. They just felt that one outside the bounds of fair politics and fail sporting. And yeah. when you read about it in his father's son, or if you read about the Teapot Dome scandal elsewhere, he doesn't have anything invested in it. His wife, I believe, Eleanor, his wife, Eleanor, that's also a little confusing. Yeah. They have the same name as well. <laughs> yeah. But uh, she had divested them of everything. And he says, oh, thank goodness I'm not connected to it at all because he cared about his family name and doing the right thing. And corruption was a huge thing for his father. So he wasn't about to be caught with his hand in the cookie jar here but she tars him with that and i think that really hurts and i always remember that i know politics is a blood sport but it always bugs me when people think 
black and white here in history and that the Franklin and Eleanor were so perfect. But then again, I try to look at it from the other way and say, maybe yeah. we want somebody who's really ruthless and is willing yeah. to do anything to win. So I don't know. I, I have to try to balance here, but yeah. I, I usually tilt pretty heavily towards Oyster Bay in the fight. Yeah. It was an interesting note in their lives because it does really show the toughness of politics and the Roosevelt family in its presidents, both Theodore and uh, Franklin, these guys were good politicians, and good politicians mean sometimes that you have to get your knuckles a little bloody on occasion. And and there are very few people who last as long in the political arena as those two did without having, as they say, some blood on their knuckles. I was reading Robert W. Mary's biography upcoming in September on President McKinley. That's what it's called, President McKinley, architect of the American century. And he talks about T.R. being out there when he's just an assemblyman attacking William Jennings Bryan when he's running against McKinley. And that's some pretty bare knuckle stuff yeah. there, too. So this is part of it. This is part of it. It's not a not a savory part. And you after you've seen Ted, I think, on that football field and being carried off there you you pull for the guy you don't want to see him get beat up anymore but it happens in his long life certainly he gets beat up and wounded in the great war now he's run for governor and it's the interwar years he joins the isolationists hoping to keep the u.s out of a second european war but of course that movement fails describe ted's physical condition as he enlists again to fight well, by this time, Ted's in his mid-50s by the time Second World War starts to roll around, and he's done a lot in his life. He was wounded during World War One. I. I, I don't think we talked about that. He was shot in the knee. He was also gassed. He's mid-50s. He's got arthritis. He's got old war wound. He's not in the best physical shape. He's also a lifelong smoker, and he doesn't mind imbibing every now and then. So he's not in prime physical condition. But nonetheless, he signs up for service in the war, and his old friend George Marshall finds a post for him back in the 1st Division. And Ted is given an assistant division command in the 1st Division, and he goes off to a training camp at the start of the war, and he's back with the troops again. And he would have been uh, 53 or 54 in 1941. And it's an unlikely post for a guy who's not only the son of one of the most famous presidents in American history, but someone who's had since his last service has served in a cabinet position, has traveled to Southeast Asia on, on arduous hunting expeditions with his brother Kermit, has come back and served both Puerto Rico and the Philippines, and also served in the Republican Party time and again on the campaign trail, and then an editor at Doubleday. So, I mean, this is a guy who's had a pretty full life, and he goes back into the service at 53 or 54 years of age, and he's back basically training novice troops up in Massachusetts. And being governor of the Philippines and Puerto Rico, not an easy or healthy thing either to do in those days. Take a toll on you, all that heat and yeah. tropical diseases. I believe he's blinded by the gas, isn't he? He's just an incredible life of service. Yeah, his life was extremely 
extraordinarily full, <laughs> you know, even without his wartime heroics, it was a full life. And the expeditions with Brother Kermit were arduous too. I mean, this is a man who climbed the Himalayas and traveled through the deserts of Central Asia and, and the jungles of Southeast Asia. And he did this. This is still in the era of, of primitive travel. These are tough, tough journeys. And he made those too. As I say, after all of this work and all of this strenuous life, he was back in service. But, you know, he was showing the signs of his age. You mentioned his service in the first division, the Big Red One. Listeners may be familiar with that movie. They also may be familiar with Ted from Henry Fonda's portrayal in The Longest Day. How close is that performance to the reality and the myth of D-Day and Ted's service in it? Well, it's melodramatic, obviously. D-Day, the, the movie The Longest Day, is, has its melodramatic moments. But it was accurate in its early depictions of Ted pleading. By this time, he was serving with the 4th Division at D-Day, and his commander was a general named Tubby Barton. Ted, by this time, had decided that he wanted to be a part of the big show. And the big show then was the D-Day invasion. And Ted had always had this image of himself as being like his father, someone whose destiny was to serve at history-making moments. And so Ted really wanted to go in with the first wave at D-Day, and his rationale was a good one. He was the most experienced general in the U.S. Army for amphibious invasion. He'd done it in North Africa. He'd done it on Sicily. He was experienced in a form of warfare that you really don't collect a lot of experience in. I mean, the odds of surviving an amphibious landing are such that you don't get many chances to repeat the experience. And yet he had done so already three times in three major invasions during the war. So he thought that it, he would make an ideal general to lead from the front. And this was his argument with General Barton, who, of course, was very ambivalent about the notion of being the commander who sent a 56, by this time, Ted was 56 years old, to the sands of Normandy, the son of the man whose visage was by that time planted on a big mountain out in South Dakota, to send him to what seemed like an almost certain death coming off of those landing craft at Utah Beach was something that Barton was not wild about doing. But Ted convinced him, and remember this scene from the movie, that there's an argument in the cabin which is dramatized, but because the decision had been made quite a bit before the eve of the uh, invasion, or actually a few days prior to that. But at any rate, that was accurate, the sort of debate between Barton and Ted, as played by Henry Fonda in the movie. And so Ted got his wish and was put in the first wave to go ashore at Utah Beach. Yeah, that's very vividly written in the book. And your last line there after building up what Tubby Barton knows he's sending Ted into is on a cane. <laughs> right. That's the end of your chapter there. He's going to be with a cane and using a pistol. And he's 
not got great knees. He's trying to get it. I mean, it's hard for a healthy person to get around in sand. And there he is. But there's one detail that's in the myth and the legend that you explained to me when we were talking about his father's son is something you can't document. And that was this idea that he didn't like wearing a helmet. And so he didn't have a helmet on a D-Day. You couldn't document that. I couldn't document it. And there are mixed messages. Ted sent mixed messages about helmets. He didn't like to wear helmets. But I think in the heat of battle, he was not averse to wearing them. He, he writes a letter to Eleanor once in which he describes, this is in North Africa, a helmet saving his life. I can't remember which battle it was in North Africa, but he writes about, well, the chin strap was bothersome, and he almost lost his head due to the chin strap. Having the helmet there saved him. So I, I just was uncertain whether the, the legend was that he wouldn't wear a helmet I will say this, he was not a foolish soldier. As much as he was unafraid of leading from the front, he wasn't the sort of guy who would take unnecessary risks in battle. I just never could confirm that he didn't have a helmet on during the landing itself. Also, there are all sorts of accounts of that landing which are apocryphal. There were people, soldiers, who claimed to have seen Ted on the beach at Utah, waving them forward, who, you know, the timing is all wrong and and the unit is all wrong or something like that, meaning that... His Jeep. Yeah. They claim he had his Jeep, right? He he didn't have a Jeep. He didn't get a Jeep (laughs) until the end of the first day. It's one of those things where the legend is enough to me. Let me backtrack and say that his leading by example was enough for me. He was... He was, uh, just think what it would be like to be a young 21-year-old kid scared witless in one of those landing craft, and you look beside you, and there is the son of the Theodore Roosevelt shoulder to shoulder with you. That is such an inspirational thing, I would say, you know, just to know that you are part of this moment with the son of this great man and the great man himself you can extrapolate from that how many soldiers landing on Utah Beach that day would say, I landed with Ted Roosevelt, even if they were nowhere near him. There is another line that's from the myth, the legend of Ted landing that day. And it's that like many of the craft, they were blown off course and they look at the map and Ted figures out that they're about a mile, I think, from where they're supposed to be. And he says, according to this legend, well, we'll start the war from right here. Mm -hmm. What about that? How can you document that? What are the conflicting stories on that line? Well, I was reading Stephen Ambrose in D-Day. He offered the conflicting notion, and I'm going to blank on the other officers who were with Ted in that moment. But the true story is that there was a huddle of officers, a huddle on the beach with Ted and a group of the commanding officers at Utah Beach. And Ted was the first to note that they were off course. And after that, he huddled with the commanders. He pointed this out. And just who said, we'll start the war from right here, is in dispute. One of the other commanders in his account of the war claimed to have said it himself. And Ambrose credited that officer with saying it. 
So again, I was just uncomfortable. I explained these circumstances in my book, and I was uncomfortable giving the quote to Ted, even though it's given to Ted in several other accounts, including the book The Longest Day itself. And a lot of people continue to attribute the quote to Ted. Again, to me, it just it doesn't seem to make that much difference. The heroics and the flavor of the story are all true. The heroics are just stepping out on that beach. And the story of Ted on his cane, stumping around on the beach, directing traffic, pointing people, inspiring young soldiers forward, I don't think you need much more than that of a 56-year-old man. I don't think he also has to be attributed with certainty the wisdom to, we'll start the war here. You write in his father's son that Ted, as a young man, acted as a heart shield for his siblings. And I think of how his mother often said that she had six children, counting her husband, the president. (laughs) And as I was reading his father's son and hearing about how Ted was sometimes looked down on or frustrated men like George S. Patton and Omar Bradley, even Eisenhower, who gets word of this, that feel he's too friendly with those men in the first division. I thought back to the Spanish-American War. His father has one of those moments, too, where he takes all the men in, in the Rough Rider Division out for beer, and I think it's Leonard Wood, who tells him his commanding officer and friend, you can't do that. You have to keep a little bit of distance. You're the officer. And TR, like he did everything, starts profusely apologizing, over the top apologizing with so much enthusiasm and realizes he made a fool of himself. Ted's reputation as being a lax disciplinarian during the Second World War, being a soldier's general, that is something that causes him a little bit of pain there. And that's why he has to make that fight to be among the landing men on D-Day. What trouble does that cause him with men like Patton, like Omar Bradley, and how do they come around to seeing him after his heroics and the broad scope of his service when, because of this bad heart he has, by the way, that he doesn't let stop him on D-Day, he ends up passing away shortly after? It's an interesting tale. Patton and Bradley were both military academy soldiers and regular army soldiers, and Patton in particular was a stickler for detail and stickler for command. To them, Ted was something of an amateur. He was a volunteer soldier, and his closeness with the frontline soldiers was seen by them as ultimately as a sign of, that he was not cut out for high command. It took him till the very end to get a division command. He was just about to be named commander of the 4th Division in France when he died of his heart attack. But he won them over ultimately with his courage and with the way that he did lead. He was a great leader. There's no doubt about it that his men would follow, would, would go with him anywhere. And he won both... Patton and Bradley over ultimately through that means. In the end, when about a month after Utah Beach, he succumbs to a heart attack, as you mentioned. There were signals that his heart was failing for several weeks, a couple months actually, prior to uh, the invasion. In a sense, it's a wonder he lasted as long as he did. But when he died in a converted truck, sort of a truck that had been converted into an office for him, He was buried in France, 
And at his funeral and the service that accompanied him, right in the middle of the ongoing invasion, a whole slew of U.S. Army command showed up at his funeral, including Patton and Bradley, and and they served as pallbearers to carry him away. Tim, I have one final question. Today, you can see Ted Roosevelt's house in the apple orchard at Sagamore Hill, but I always found it sad that it's been gutted and replaced with tributes to, as you might guess, his father. His mother lives a long life. He's never able to move into Sagamore Hill. This is one of the ways that he falls a little short of his father his whole life. But having researched him and admiring him and seeing him ultimately succeed, what do you hope readers will take away from his father's son to remember this man who was a great American in his own right and more than just the heir to that face on Mount Rushmore? Well, you know, I hope they see just that, that Ted was just an outstanding figure of a 20th century American. He had his own character that was ultimately a different character than his father. In many ways, he was, I think, one of the most successful Roosevelt's. He had a, built a wonderful family life and served heroically in two wars and did it his way, to quote Sinatra, despite the fact that he, he was his father's son. He bore that mantle well, and not many people are able to make that claim. And certainly he had a couple of siblings who were not nearly as successful in being Theodore Roosevelt's son. But again, I don't think this is a competition. It's not who is a worthy successor and who is a worthy historical figure. Ted had distinctions of his own and deserves to be seen on his own. But within the context, it's impossible to avoid the context of being named Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Well, Tim Brady, author of His Father's Son, thank you so much for taking time to talk about the Oyster Bay Roosevelt's with me today and a little bit of the Hyde Park Roosevelt's thrown in. I hope people will pick up the book and run a scramble with Ted and the rest of his family, something they love to do there at the beach at Oyster Bay. He's truly one of the very, very few presidential children who you can say stands toe-to-toe with his father and not only crossed the street just as old T.R. would have, but in the two world wars, He outdid that bow and arrow affair and showed that he had really stern stuff, tough stuff, made his father proud in the Great War. I wish you the best of luck with the book. It's Bully. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thanks for talking with me, Dean. The morning of June 6th, this was the battleground. Fierce fighting around Cannes. Vast squadrons of bombers and transports led the way. More than 11,000 planes spearheading the attack. Paratroopers landed in Normandy behind the coastal defenses. Landings made with timing and precision, perfected only through scores of rehearsals. Again, the book is His Father's Son, The Life of General Ted Roosevelt Jr. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. And we hope you will click through there or even navigate through the Amazon banner on our homepage the next time you purchase anything from Amazon. You go to historyauthor.com, we take in Amazon, and amazon.com gives us a small percentage of every dollar you spend at no additional charge in your shopping cart. For just a few extra clicks, 
you can help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. My thanks to Tim Brady for joining us and for introducing us to a son who grew into a legend himself, despite the long shadow of his famous father. You can navigate to his author pages at Amazon and Penguin Random House by going to this episode's page on our website. One final Roosevelt fact, Theodore Roosevelt and Theodore Roosevelt Jr. are only the second father and son team to win Congressional Medals of Honor. The other two are the MacArthur's. Well, that's it for this episode of the History Author Show. Let us know what you think of the book and the interview on Twitter at History Dean or Facebook.com slash History Author. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for next Monday's all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. The boys won the war and came home from the fight. The last night on Broadway was almost his night. But ever since then, it's a different street. Gone are the places where the gang used to be. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.